Well, welcome, Calvary Chapel, Dallas. How y'all doing? Maranatha. Hey, well done, y'all. That's awesome. Hey, today we're going to be continuing our study through the book of Revelation. Today we start chapter 3. And um, I'm going to read this section of scripture, chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Uh, we're going to look at the church of Sardis, so I'll stop in verse 6, and then we'll dig into the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we need your heart right here, right now. God, bind anything and everything that's not of you. For, Lord, we desire to learn of our king and to learn of you. Help us to learn from the past. Thank you so much for giving us your word that here and now, God, we could know your heart, we could know your plan, we could know your purpose. Give us understanding. God, get, we need, we desperately need your spirit for how can flesh know the things of the spirit? God, fill us fresh and anew to be about our Father's business. And for anyone, God, that doesn't know you or is hurting, God, please pour out your spirit upon them. Bless them, Father, we pray. Heal the broken hearts, heal the diseases, heal the fears, heal the struggles, the worries, the pains, the arguments and all that stuff. Help us not to get sucked into the things of this world, but to keep our eyes upon you always in all things. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, that you have a name that you are alive, but you're dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Wow. Heavy, heavy letter. Um, I know in the beginning I said I was going to read and then pray, but as soon as I started, I felt like the Lord said we needed to pray first. And I think we need to pray again. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you in Jesus' name. God, give us ears to hear. Father, even as your servant David had said that you had pierced his ears through, open us up, God, that we might hear you. Just, Holy Spirit, have your way. I pray that you would just block out the things of the world, that not a second would be lost with you, King Jesus. Give us ears to hear what your spirit says to the churches. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. You know, some call the Sermon of the Mount Jesus' first sermon. Maybe it was. My kids think I'm really old, but I wasn't that old, so I don't know. It, it may have been when he spoke, um, when they gave him the scroll and he opened and he read from the Gospel of Luke. But either way, first or second, Matthew 5 through 7, I didn't make a slide for this, I'm just trying to paint a picture. King Jesus, when he stepped on earth and walked among people, he taught us spiritual applications that, that the reality, what, what's done in the physical has a spiritual tense to it. For example, to hate, according to King Jesus, it was murder, and lust was adultery. Lies or broken vows were only from the evil one, and he did teach us to go the extra mile. 
He taught us and still teaches us to this day that we are to love our enemies and to bless those who curse us and to do good to those who even hate us and to pray for those that will physically attack us. That was like Christianity 101. Seems like a tall order to live to today. But that was Jesus' heart. Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus taught us to love and not allow the world in its sins to suck us into its sin. You remember mama used to say, somebody's got to be the adult here. Or maybe our wives have told us that a time or two. (laughs) Somebody's got to be the adult here. One of my favorite little couples Devo books is called Married for Life. I've used this several times. I'm probably going to use it 10,000 more times until the Lord comes back. But there's one of the Devos there where, where they're, they're asking the couples, every one of them have been married for more than 50 years, and they're asking, what's the secret to your marriage? One of them that I loved, this is one I actually loved the most, it was the wife, and she said, we were not both weak at the same time because it takes two to fight. The church of Sardis became a dead church because two were weak at the same time. No one was being the adult. And I think it's a really, you know, the church, as we've read through chapter two, we've seen a persecuted church. And then those that were persecuted became the, the persecutor when, when Rome, get, or when the, the Catholic church took over and they gained their power Um, from a so-called Christian Rome. So they went from the persecuted to the persecutor, and now today we are starting the the Reformation or or an attempt to try to clean up the church. This is the fifth church, and Jesus' introduction to this church is different than all the other churches that we have read thus far. Jesus typically started his letters to the church with, with a, hey, here, this is good, this is bad, but this was good. But this church, he starts out, everybody thinks you're something, but I know who you really are. Again, that whole idea of the Sermon of the Mount on Matthew chapter 5, would, if there was hate in your heart, Christ looked at that as equal to the sin of murder. So here we read a rebuke. And then we read an exhortation. And then we read a commendation to the faithful few. And then we read about a promise. The last church, the seventh church in the book of Revelation, we read the same type of thing too. But only to these churches does Jesus speak to them this way. Sardis, historically speaking, a little bit like that slide is showing, is 30 miles southeast of Thyatira, the church that we had studied last week. Today it's called Sart, located in Turkey. It was famous for being a military stronghold on high hills and steep inclines, some cliffs as well. It was known for strong growth and for wealth, very similar to Thyatira, how Thyatira had the dyes and stuff and the cloths and rugs and whatnot. Well, so did this church. It's interesting, though, in 17 AD, the original Sardis fell. And when they rebuilt it, they actually built it lower on the hills than when it was originally built. I find that very interesting. They left the original location there, and they became lower when they rebuilt. The temple of Artemis is here, and the Greeks believed that Hercules' son, and I'm probably pronouncing this wrong because I don't appreciate Greek mythology, but it's Heraclides or something like that. They believe that this, is, this was kind of his stomping grounds or everything that he would kind of control. This church was very similar to the persecuted church, but just the complete other side of the coin. In that the church of Smyrna, the word that was giving to them was physically, you look like you're poor and dying, but Jesus said, but what I see, you are rich. Here, this church, the whole world thought, you guys look amazing, but Jesus says, but you're spiritually dead. They were the living dead. Historically, last week we talked about dispensationalism and how the different time frames perhaps can mean historical events. We looked at how the first church was the apostolic period. The second church was the emperor period. The third church was the Constinian period. The fourth, in which we studied last week, was the papal or the Roman Catholic rule within churches. And today, 
if dispensationalism is right, this is the Reformation. Its dates are 1517 to 1730. But something happened with the Reformation. And where is that? That's why I asked Pastor Juan to bring this in here. Because the, to completely understand what's taking place, the church had gone rogue. The church went where they were like the ruling power. Even some of the popes were viewed as the kings back in the dark ages. We, we all know that. We've seen the movies. We've read the books. But coming out of that, there was a, a younger minister who was in about his second year of law school, grew up a very poor child, but his dad worked in the mines, raising as much money as he could to give his son a better future. And about his second year of law school, he's, he's walking home kind of a thing, and a radical storm comes in there, and he, and he believes he's going to die while he's walking home, a man named Martin Luther. And as he's walking down the road, the, the lightnings and the thunders were coming down, him fearing for his own life, prayed to God, begging God to save his life. At one point, history says he fell on the ground, fear had gripped him so much he could barely move, and he screamed out to God that if you would save me, I will, I will become a monk. I will serve you all of my life. Now, I don't want to show of hands, but I'm just going to pose the question. How many people have ever been a place where you were so scared, you were like, God, just save me from this, and I will never fill in the blank? Anybody been there? Okay, the <laughs> I'll take that as a yes. Well, he was, he was. And he was faithful to his word. You read about this guy, his history, who he was in the beginning. Y'all, I, I mentioned it a little bit last week. If I had a poster of my heroes on the wall, he would be one of them. At least for the first three years after he nailed that 95 thesis on the Wittenberg Castle. But about three years after that, he was called into court to stand trial as a heretic his crimes, they said, were not only for his 95 thesis, but his multiple errors in his books and the way that he taught. And beloved, this 37-year-old monk stood against all the power in the world. And that's where we got that famous statement, here I stand and I can say no more. He basically asked the church, prove to me in the scriptures where I'm wrong. He said, if you do, I'll recant everything. I'll burn the books myself, but just show me in the word of God where, I'm, where I was wrong. They viewed that as heresy. They threw him out trying to figure out what they're going to do. And, and his lead professor actually took him and hid him where he began to write the word of God in the German language. His, the drive of his heart was during the Constantinian period when Constantine tried to eradicate all of the Greek and a lot of the Hebrew texts. They wrote the Bible only in Latin because they figured Latin was the, the rich, the wise people could read it and the common people could read Greek. So we're not gonna allow the common people to hold the very scriptures that you and I hold in our hands or we have in our lap. But the drive of his heart was, I just want my people to be able to read the word. He was sent on a mission before that court case to go back into Rome. And in that place, he writes how his heart was broken and ripped from his own chest because of what the papacy was doing to fleece the flock of God. Things like a coin in the coffer would spring a soul from purgatory was kind of an idea. The church was trying to build, and some of the fanciest temples and chapels and stuff like that, they're even around the world, was this radical move of fleecing the flock where if you paid money, you could spring your, your dad out of purgatory. They'd just pay for his soul, and then because God loves us so much, we, can, we have the free ticket of bringing people out of purgatory that doesn't exist. It was a man-made idea to actually control the house of God. Most likely, or at least as the, we, we read from the Nicolaitans, as church history records for us. Now again, please don't misunderstand me. I, I said this last week, I think it's important to say again today, that I do believe that there are believers in the Catholic church. I do, absolutely. I've even met some Catholics that are spirit-filled. I didn't even know that was possible. But I was like, hey, praise the Lord. Hey, if God's with you, 
You do you, I'm going to do me. You got to stand and answer before God, I'm going to stand and answer before God. I don't get the relics, I don't get none of that. But there is only one judge. There's only one judge. None of us have the opportunity to judge. And as soon as we judge, we fall into the same sin as this church. Because they did not have even scales. They viewed their sins as less than that of the papacy. And so those guys over there, there was no hope for them, but there's all kind of hope for us. Jumping forward again, back to that idea of him standing in court. And now he's in hiding and he's writing the scriptures. He got word that a hit was put upon him. And apparently the Pope had said that if anybody killed Martin Luther, all of their sins would be erased, past, present, and future, and they got a free ride into heaven. So people were like, <laughs> okay, where's he at? You know, kind of a thing. Well, when that happened, Martin Luther's mindset changed. And instead of being a guy that just wanted his people to have the word of God, he became more known for what he was not. In other words, we're not like those bad people over there. We're the good people. They're the bad people. And in that place, he began to drift. The Bible tells us in Proverbs 20 and verse 10, diverse weights and diverse measures are both alike an abomination to the Lord. So maybe one side has weights that they're putting inside these, these old, this is just a cheap replica that we got at Nebraska Furniture, but it was something was, you know, like this when they, the people did, this was business back in the day, you know? And, and people would hide things in there, have little whatever, you know, to, to you know, you got to put more aside. You know, look, it's got to be even. And, and, and so God from heaven, and multiple times throughout the scripture, I'm just pulling one verse, that diverse weights, cheating people, stealing, lying, deception, stuff like that, or diverse measures even. You know, like sometimes we might rate our sins different than we might rate other sins. I mean, let me just speak very, very frankly. With a mixed crowd, pay attention. Don't we view some sins as more gross? That one's worse than stealing a stick of bubble gum, right? That, that's diverse measures. You, you guys know the, the ancient Hebrew and even the ancient Greek, both, both those ideas of sin or where we get the word sin. One was shooting an, shooting an arrow right there or throwing a spear kind of a thing. And, and it, there, there was like a, 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 like a big hula hoop kind of a thing. And they had to get it inside that hole. And if they missed, there would be a guy. I'd hate to be the guy that had to stand by the circle where spears and arrows are coming at you. You'd be like, whoa, you know. That you think about head balls during pitching. This could be dangerous. People are shooting arrows and chucking spears at you. Anyway, they're by that place and they're watching to see, did that arrow, did that spear go through that hole? And if it didn't, then they would yell, sinner, sinner. And so when the Christians were using words to describe what, what missing the mark of God is, we got the word sinner for our English language. And so if you missed that, just say that you had to hit a table or something like this size, or just say you had to hit this thing right here, that you had to hit this, and if you missed it, you missed. Well, if you missed it by just this much, or if you missed it by like way over here, right? yeah, I mean, they missed more, but you still missed. You missed the mark. And see, sometimes though in our culture, what we do is we look at, well, the thing that I did, well, God really knows my heart, you know, God, you know, but Lord, look at them. You know, kind of a thing. It's the whole log in the eye and the splinter in the eye kind of a thing. And that's, that's what happened. You have an idea that you're alive, but you're not. Anyway, I do tend to believe that dispensationalism in its then and there and in the history, I think there's a lot of sense to that. But let's just jump into the word and see what the scripture says for itself. In verse 1, we read, 
And to the angel in the church in Sardis write, these things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. We read about this earlier in chapter one. We've even seen the seven spirits of God. We've even talked about the idea of seven being the number of completion. There's a few schools of thoughts on this. Seven being the number of completion could mean the fullness of God, everything about God. Or it could be what Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 2 are talking about when we see seven different attributes of the Spirit of God, where the Bible says the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. That is salvation. Number two, the Spirit of wisdom. Number three, and of understanding. Number four, the Spirit of counsel. Number five, and might. Um, number six, the Spirit of knowledge. And number seven, the Spirit of the fear of the Lord. These could be the seven workings of the Holy Spirit um, that are even before the throne. Um, one day we will know with perfect understanding exactly what's being said. I, I lean towards the side that it could be both. That when God says something is complete, it is complete. And I don't think that there's any oops with God. I, I don't think he makes mistakes, regardless of what you might think of when you look into the mirror or when our kids do something crazy, you know, or when we're like, well, that's your kid, you know, those kind of, but, but God doesn't make mistakes at all. We do. And sometimes our mistakes are so bad that we might even judge ourselves to think that we could never be saved because if you only knew the things that I have been through, there's no way God could save me. God could save somebody else, but he can't save me. If there is anybody in here, if there is anybody online that feels that way, I promise you that Jesus Christ is a bigger savior than you are a sinner. Things that you did willfully or even things that were done against you, Jesus, the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to save sin because the Bible tells us so. Anyway, when God says the seven spirits, I think that that's perfect. It's absolutely complete. He, the verse also said the seven stars, and we've studied this a few times as we've been moving through the churches, so I'm not going to labor on the point other than just to say, and the then and there it actually meant the pastors of the church. These were seven letters, physical letters that were sent to seven physical churches and, and were to be read in the church. And knowing this, Jesus is saying, I work in all of the churches, but because this church spiritually was dead, it's like Jesus is saying, look at y'all. I have the fullness of the Holy Spirit. I have all of the ministers in my hand, but you are not letting me be there. That, I think, is a very dangerous word. He says, I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. You know, one of the things that I love about King Jesus, though, is Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. Jesus came to bring the dead back to life. Hallelujah. We were all once dead people apart from Christ. We had studied that a lot when we were in the book of Ephesians, but now Jesus is showing us something here, though, that's really radical, that you can go from dead to alive to almost dead again. That's what he said to this church. I know that's not a popular teaching, and it's one of the reasons why most of the early reformers didn't even want the book of Revelation to be in the Bible, but that's what Jesus says. You have a name that you're alive, but Jesus says, but you're dead. They had a lot of stuff going on. But I do believe that the Reformation, even though it was left undone, it never was completed. But I do believe that, that enough headway was made that you and I are Protestants today. The Protestant Reformation was not the first split within the church. The first split was actually the Greeks, the Orthodox Greek church they split long before Luther did his, his uh, 95 thesis on the Wittenberg Castle. You know, when I was a kid, there was a band that grew up in Ireland. And, and they're, they're really old right now. I don't think they should still be singing. But they sung a, a really popular song back in the day, like in the 90s, and it was called Sunday Bloody Sunday. And that song was literally about them growing up on their own streets watching the Catholic and Christian wars on Sunday. We're supposed to be going to church, but instead we're going to kill each other on the streets of Ireland. 
So they wrote that song, Sunday Bloody Sunday. They wrote another song, it's called 11 O'Clock TikTok, and it's about the church, and they say it this way, oh, painted face, speaking of the church, that the church has a painted face. I know we have arrived. We thought that we had the answers, but it was the questions that we had wrong. I'm like, wow, I, I think that's deep right there. Casting Crowns today sings a song called The Stained Glass Masquerade, speaking of kind of the just, you know, bogus stuff that happens inside church. The book of Isaiah calls it dry bones. I have a friend who lives in Scotland who's not a believer. And every, I think it's every other year he comes home and we usually have dinner with him and his wife and daughter when they're traveling Back in the States, we went to high school together. I joined the Army, he joined the Navy, because he's a sissy, but that's a whole nother thing. The, um, the <laughs> I love Navy guys too. Sometimes we need the boats to carry the men's stuff across overseas, but and, anyway. Sooner or later, there's going to be a Navy guy preaching, and he's going, to, he's going to drop some dimes. I've also, there's a Marine in here, and I also heard that the Navy was the taxi for the Marines. That's, that's what I was told. Anyway, this friend I have in Scotland, he told me, he said, you know, you guys should come to Scotland sometime. And I said, hey, that'd be cool. I'd love to play golf where it originated. But he told me this. He said, but you can tell nobody that you're a Protestant pastor he said, because I cannot guarantee your safety. At minimum, you'll get beat up. He then went on to tell me something that I didn't know. Because I think Europeans, when they say football, they don't know what they're talking about. Because football is the pigskin, you know, kind of a thing, which I'm probably not going to watch if whatever. That's another thing. But, but, you know, soccer. We call it soccer. They call it football. And he told me that the majority of the fights that are taking place, he asked me, he's like, well, don't you know why those fights take place? I'm like, no. And he said, well, every city has the Catholic soccer team and the Protestant soccer team. I'm like, what? He's like, yeah. And the fights that are happening in the stand usually have nothing to do with what's happening on the field. They're, that's just the Christians and the Protestants fighting. He said, even to this day in, in Europe. It's, I, I'm like, no way, I didn't even know that. And he's like, yeah, most Americans don't know too much about what's happening around the world. I, I mean, it just kind of broke my heart to hear that. I've been to Europe three times. This year I've been twice into Hungary. And because I've seen quite a few of the pastors and got to teach in some of the churches there, um, you know, you build a little bit of rapport with the guys. And so my last, the, the last one that, um, uh, this year, when I was doing the weddings and stuff, let me rephrase that. I've only been once this year. I've, I've been two other times. But the time that I went this year, I was staying in a pastor's house for a few days and got to ask a lot of questions. And it was really fun for me because the way that we as Westerners view eschatology or the study of the end times, I asked him, I'm like, so who's the far north that's going to come and get Israel? And he's like, oh, that's China. And, and uh, he's like, you didn't know that? And I'm like, no, I'm just asking you the question. I, I, I have my opinion. I just want to hear what Europeans think about this. And, um, uh, and then he says, I know most of the Westerners believe that it's Russia. And, and I thought, yeah, that's ev most everybody leans that way. And then he said, now I'm going to tell you something. That's the most popular thinking. Our thought is the two are going to join and they're going to come down. I thought, I don't know. I hope to have a bird's eye view when that's taking place. But I got to ask this guy, too, because, see, after the Reformation and when we get into the next time frame, their next age, we're looking at the missionary period, you know, when the airplanes were invented and, and, and the gospel started going around the world all over the place. But prior to that, most of the Reformed churches that were in Europe, though they spread like fire, began to die within a couple hundred years. And so the, the church or the impact of the church is almost gone even to this day, but it is making a comeback. But, so, but I asked this guy, I'm like, so hey, what's, what's your biggest struggles here? How could we in America be praying for you guys? And, and, and his answer to me was shocking because he said, what do you think it is? I'm like, well, I'm, I don't want to answer. 
In my head, I had an answer, but I didn't want to put any thoughts in his head. I wanted to hear from a pastor's heart, what is the biggest struggle that you're dealing with? And this was his answer. And I have, fr- and I, and listen, I'm not throwing stones at anybody because I got friends in a lot of different camps. But his answer was our biggest problem is the Reformed Church, the Calvinists. I'm like, what? And he said, yeah, because they're constantly attacking us. I'm like, it's not the Catholic Church? And he said, they're a problem, but it's people of our own camp. That's what he said. I'm like, oh, man. And, uh, you know, I... I got good friends on, that, are, that, that are like staunch Calvinists and some that say, well, I'm a reformer and they don't even know what Calvinist is and Calvinists that don't even know what reformed are, but they really are all kind of in the same school, but a lot of them don't even know that, but, but that's a whole nother thing. But the thing that was really breaking my heart was like, no way, because it ought not be so. It ought not be so for none of us. And now we're just learning an example of, of this, that when we get into the next church, there's things too. When we get into the last church, the lukewarm church, it's like, ah, and that's speaking of you and me, the lukewarm, ah. Jesus said this church is dead though. James said in James chapter two, verse 26, a, or the first side of it, for the body without the spirit is dead. It's true for our physical body and it's as equally as true spiritually. Leonard Ravenhill said this, uh, many great quotes. I just love this one for today. It, it, it says, there is a world of difference between knowing the word of God and knowing the God of the word. There is a world of difference between knowing the word of God and knowing the God of the word. Look, the devil knows the Bible better than all of us put together, and he's still the devil, right? But to know the word of God without the heart of God can be a dangerous thing. Sometimes I wish there was warning labels on the Bible because, you know, this church, the, the, they're like, everybody thinks you're doing awesome. But Jesus says, but I know that you're dead. You're not. I, I, I know the internal. I know what's making your heart beat. That's, I wish there was warning labels. I wish I would have known it for myself so many times. It, I was on an airplane last week, so I had a lot of brain dead time to think. And I wish there was a warning label on the Bible that, that said, for Bible knowledge. And then parenthetically, it said, it could cause pride. I wish there was a warning label that said, for obedience to the scripture and not self-justification. I wish there was a warning label that said, never forget what Satan said to Eve. Because all he had to do is twist the word. Sometimes I wish this, this warning label would even include things like, if, if this, if this word of God doesn't move you to repentance and evangelism, then you're not reading it correctly. I wish that there was a warning label that said, if this makes you prideful, you're Sardis. I wish it said that if the end result of reading the word of God isn't a deeper worship of God and love for people, then you miss the point. And one last one. I wish there was a warning label that said, would you read this book and consider correcting other people before yourself, then you're backsliding. Because I just think sometimes we can get into the word of God and we can kind of miss the point and point the finger and have uneven scales. This past week, I was with a pastor, the, the guy who trained me in disaster relief and just became a really good friend. And you know, sometimes when you're really deep, dark places and you're doing really, really hard things, there becomes like a really close bond. Well, me and... And Bill Paquette, he's, we're like brothers. He's a lot older than me, and he's probably watching. He's slower, and he can't play golf that good and all that, and, but whatever. <laughs> it's like, but he said something. Man. He said a lot of things, actually. He's, he's one of the guys that I, I just look to for help and a different opinion. He thinks totally different than I do about so many things, but one of the things that he said that is kind of a common phrase that he says in his church. Apparently, 
he tells his body, God didn't put us here just to be eye candy for the world. And he says, I know from my perspective, y'all look really good, like some really good eye candy. But God put us actually here to love others and to be his hands and feet. And I thought, man, that's so good. And so I've also heard that if you quote someone three times, then it becomes your own quote. So you probably, but only have, you only have to quote them the first time. The second time you're quoting yourself. The third time you do it, it's yours. A dumb preacher's joke. But I do believe that that's true, that God put us here to be his hands and his feet. You know, sometimes I think being a Christian, this whole idea of, of everybody thinks you're alive, but, but from God's perspective, no, you're not. That Sometimes I think this is the big deal. One of the hardest things as a Christian, once you've been a Christian for, for a little bit, and you've read the Bible maybe a couple times, or maybe you're kind of hitting your groove, and you know, you're like, you and Jesus, you're tight, and... Um, uh, not perfect, but you know you're totally different. You don't use the same vocabulary you did before. Your attitude's different, whatever. Like, you, you know, right, fruit. At that point, sometimes I think the hardest thing about being a Christian from that point is finding out what not to do or what not to say. Because sometimes it hurts real bad not to do things or to say something that, thinks, that you think needs to be said because God told you not to do it. And it doesn't make any sense in your head at all, why aren't I doing this? Why, why don't you want me to say that? When I was praying about this, the, the, what the Lord put on my heart, it's beca- I felt like because sometimes it's actually hate. And like we ought not say that. We're supposed to be known for love and compassion and forgiveness. And our God is a God of mercy. There's actually a movie about Martin Luther and the Reformation. It's called Luther. It came out in 2003, I believe. It's, it's just got a picture of his face. But the, I, I, we should do a movie night and just watch that movie. We should have a food contest while we're watching it too, just so we could eat something good. I need a volunteer to lead it. Shoot us an email. We'll figure that out. But anyway, the... Um, it, it, one of Luther's drives, and it shows it so well in the movie. If you read his books or his devos or whatever, it's, he, his big thing was the just shall live by faith. And God is a God of mercy. He is a God of love. He is a God of compassion. He, he, he's not up there throwing darts. He's not trying to hold us in this fiery furnace to burn us a little bit, to scare us kind of a thing. But he's actually a God of mercy. Even at one point he said, if he is not a God of mercy, he is not God at all. Now, that, that was, God, God do whatever God wants to do, but his heart is, there's a lot of truth to that. When God is defining his own self, even from the Old Testament, the very first thing that he talks about is he's a God of love a God of compassion, a God of forgiveness, a God of mercy. But he's also a God of justice and righteousness and holiness and purity. There is a line that needs to be held. He is not just a genie in a bottle that we rub and, you know, hey, I, you know, hook a brother up kind of a thing, but he is, he is God. He's creator of the heaven and the universe. And he is holy, and, and we should love him and honor him and serve him because every single one of us deserved the pit of hell. So Jesus came and he, and he stepped in to create a bridge between fallen man and God. Not that God moved, but that man moved. So Jesus came down and he created that solution. See, Martin Luther got that. Like he had that kind of an epiphany, a revelation. And he was just going hard after the Lord. And that's what I believe by the spirit of God gave him the boldness to make a stand against everybody in his known world. When he stood there in court, he was, he was speaking to his own death. Because men before him, like Wycliffe and Tyndall, had, were, were, were hated by the church. Wycliffe died of old age, but they hated him so much. About 100 years after he died, they literally exhumed his body and then burned them and then threw his, threw his ashes in the, the river Swift so, in hopes that his name would be forgotten forever. Most ref- when we think of the Protestant Reformation, though, we think that when they tried to eradicate him and threw his bones or his ashes into the river, that that actually spread the Reformation around the world. I don't know, but it, it's kind of a cool story. But we do know that William Tyndall, a lot of you guys you're pro- on your Bible might even say Tyndall on it. 
because he was the one who wrote the first New Testament in English. But he was hated for it. Matter of fact, he was burned at the stake for it. He was a martyr simply because he wrote the Bible in English long before Luther. And it was amazing about this man that while he was, he was tied to the stake and they were burning him, they say that his dying words was, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. Even on his own death, he's crying out, pray, praying, interceding on behalf of other people. Anyway, sometimes I think even uneven scales or false judgments See, because once you're a Christian a little while, right, the, the church, you know, we're in like the 16th century here in this time frame kind of a thing, um, or even if it was in the then and there in the actual letter that the guys are getting, this is, this is the last decade of the first century. The church has been around for around 60 years at this point. You have a few generations taking place, but somehow, some way, it was possible in the then and there to have the appearance of something that was amazing, but actually to be dead men's bones on the inside. Again, sometimes the hardest part of being a Christian is finding out not, is to find out what we shouldn't say or shouldn't do. I think a great litmus test for that is anything that pulls us away from Christ, anything. Paul made the statement to the church, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable nor will I be brought under the power of any. But anything that moves us from Christ, I think, is, is wrong. You know, in today's world, time management, attitude management is, you know, real part of COVID's kind of through giant curveballs and all of this kind of stuff, but there's still a reality to those things. It's hard enough to manage time. It's hard enough to manage attitude. But Satan does his best work with uneven scales. Just getting the scale to, to, to tilt in our favor and the other person is worse. The splinter in our brother's eye. Another thing that I think is really, really important that the house of God knows is that Satan does a lot of work with false fruit. And, and, and it's a very ugly and dirty spiritual battle that is probably the most often missed because you have a, an appearance of looking amazing, but on the inside you're actually dying. And it's, it's, a, it's a low blow sucker, dirty fight because Jesus even said you will know them by their fruit. So on the outward, the person may look amazing. Look at all the great things they're doing. Look at all these things that are, that are going on. But inside, here's Sardis. I mean, you're looking at it and you're like, wow, this church is killing it. This thing is amazing. The church is growing. Everybody knows that, man, y'all are the one. You're the stuff right there. But Jesus says, but you're dead. See, it's, it's really strange, and it's, it's so not fair because there's moments when God uses us radically. God, God uses y'all. Um, you lay hands on people. They get healed. You're, you're out moving around. You stay sensitive to the Holy Spirit. God puts a word on your heart and you say that to your neighbor, the person in the grocery store or whatever. Or even you're at church and God puts somebody on your heart and you give them a word, whatever it is. You see a brother or sister struggling, you come alongside them and, and you weep with those that weep. You rejoice with those that rejoice. You may lay hands on somebody and pray for them and, and you see God do something. You see things happening. You may get a word of knowledge. I mean, just a thought, have you ever been walking out all by yourself, just you and Jesus, and all of a sudden God says to you, hey, that person right over there, they're crying out to me, but, the, but, but there's sin in their life, they can't hear me. I want you to walk over there and tell them whatever. And then you walk over there and you feel all weird about it, but you're like, hey, look, God just put a word on my heart and I just wanna share this with you. And, and um, God, God said this to me. And then all of a sudden they just start crying and you're like, well, hey, that, that was the Lord. I don't know. And then they're like, well, what am I supposed to do now? Like you're supposed to follow Jesus. I'm just the messenger. Just follow Jesus. Everything you put on your heart, you do that. 
Travis was with me one day when we were eating at, at, at the subway over there. And we were talking about that. And he looks at me and he's like, well, how does that happen? I'm like, I don't know. God just does it when God wants to do it. And I'm like, well, let's just stop and pray. And then and it, maybe he saw it. You ask. It was years ago. But it happened right there. At the, at the, but it happens all the time. Maybe God might use you for stuff like that or whatever it is. And all of a sudden you start feeling like, wow, God's using me. Man. The Lord gave me a word. I got to lay hands on this person that gave their life to the Lord or something happened or your car was broken and you had no money. You lay hands on it and all of a sudden God healed it. You ever done that driving down the road, check engine light? Like, Lord, we don't have enough money. The light goes off. Hallelujah. You start thinking, man, that's a Holy Spirit hand right there. You know, whatever it might be. But my, my, my thing is when God starts using you and you know it, and it was totally a God thing. There was absolutely no way that you could do whatever was happening. You know that was God. And so then you start thinking, man, God's using me. This is just amazing. And then the devil comes in there. You're pretty good, aren't you? Man, that is cool how the Lord uses you like that. I didn't, that sounds like really deep. Uh, this is, I think, the lowest blow. The, the cheapest thing that the enemy can do. Taking that good thing that was done for the Lord and using it to kill us from the inside. Man, you look so good. Everything is amazing. Everybody says that you're the stuff. Everybody wants to be where you're at kind of a thing. But Jesus says, but you're dying. It's very evil. It's, it's completely unfair. You know, it's, it's kind of like this. I felt the Lord put this analogy on my heart. It, it, for all the married couples in here, it, it's like having a marriage license and using that purse of, piece of paper to say, this is proof that, that I have a good marriage. But a piece of paper doesn't make a good marriage. Nor does the gift of the Holy Spirit being used through us for other people prove that we're tight with the Lord because God used wind. He can use rocks. He used donkeys a couple times. I think it's good for every Christian just to consider yourself donkey. Sometimes you speak for the Lord. Sometimes you carry him. And if you want an analogy, you're the donkey and Shrek. You know, the, the, you're just that guy. You know, just that, you know, that we wouldn't get high and mighty. Just that I can't believe God uses me. Kind of, kind of a thing. The, because it's tricky. Just because we have a marriage certificate doesn't even mean that we have a marriage. How many people have we known over the years that were legally married, but we're hoping that one of them would die soon so they could collect the, the insurance money or life insurance money? You know, it... Hey, a litmus test, y'all. For like application, application. I don't want to show a hands. I just want you to think about this. When was the last time that God changed you? I mean, really changed you. You remember those days when we first gave our life to Jesus and our attitude started changing? Our language started changing? Who you were as a person started changing. There was kind of like a, a God conscience inside of us. You know that none of us will ever be done until we stand before Jesus. And these mortal bodies put on perfection. Right now, these are, these are it doesn't take much to figure out. These, these bodies are dying. There, there's, and I don't mean that all morbid. Like, but like, I mean, we got to take showers twice a day because skin is dying on us and falling. You know, you know. We're falling apart. When was the last time when was the last time you heard the voice of God? I mean, really heard the voice of God. Not maybe, but you heard the voice of God. How fundamental is prayer in your life? For, for everybody who serves, can you do ministry without praying? 
I know Calvary Chapel people can pass the test. We get an A plus on it, whatever. But think this through. Like, really, can you do something spiritual without prayer? Every single one of us would say yes if we were honest. Because you know the Holy Spirit is inside of us. But also think that through. If our prayer is not fundamental, then our ministry could be a work of the flesh. Our marriage, our, our thought processes, whatever it might be. How do you, can you start your day without prayer? The answer would be yes, we all can. So how fundamental is the leading of the Holy Spirit? See, that's what happened to these guys. They, Galatians 3.3, 3, the B side of it, the, the Bible says this, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? And I, I think this is the reality of, the, of, of Sardis here. This is, hey, the, here's the big picture. Here's what's really going on. Here, because this was really taking place, but Jesus in his beautiful idea and the reality of knowing us is saying, hey, I want you to have this letter. I want you to know this. I want all the church to know until I come back, until the after these things. This really happened to a church. So I just, I thought, wow. Jesus says, now the rest I'll go quickly. Verse two says, be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. See, I love that. He said, that every, you think you're great, but you're, you're dead. And then he says, you're about to die. So he's throwing this radical rescue line out there. Strengthen the things which remain that are about to die. They're not dead yet. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know the hour in which I will come. Here's the beautiful thing, that there's always a remnant with King Jesus. There's always hope for the church and for the individual. This idea of remember, remember how it all started, remember where it all began, before you had it all figured out, before the enemy got really ugly and everything went to a, a really bad new level, remember and hold fast, you know, don't quit, don't give up, even if you know you messed up, it's remember and hold fast. When that revelation of I messed up comes, sometimes it pushes people away. And this is where Satan will slip in and will try to tell us, look at how hard it is. There's no way that you can do this. But Jesus is a greater savior than we are sinners. And this idea of, of remember and hold fast and in, in, if you tense the Greek words, these are present imperatives, which mean literally keep remembering, keep holding fast. Jesus is saying that there is another chance. I'm not recommending the movie Monty Python's Holy Grail, but if you've ever seen it, you, you remember that bring out your dead Bring out your dead. You remember that kind of stuff? Bring out your dead. And they're bringing out people and they're throwing them in the little wagons and stuff. And some of them weren't really dead. And they're like, well, he's mostly dead. And they're like, well, just take him anyway. Come on, just take him, take him, take him. Kind of a thing. If you haven't seen it, don't watch it. But if you have seen it, 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 what, it it's got some funny stuff in it. But anyway... I think that's exactly, I'm reading this, I'm like, Satan is Monty Python. Bring out your dead kind of stuff. You know, we're not dead yet, but he's saying, yes, you are. Yes, you are. There is no hope for you. But Jesus says there is hope. Remember and hold fast. And he also says, repent. Remember, hold fast, repent, which means get back on course. Change the way that you're going. Change the way that you're thinking and go back to those things which are in, that, where it all began. The Lord God Almighty said, be watchful and strengthen what remains. That word be, be watchful, be strengthening, the be word there is actually in the present imperative tense also, which, said, which is stating that this will be an everyday thing for the walk of the believer. It's almost like the word of God is saying, you know how to pray, do it. You know how to get in the word, do it. You know how to tell God, God, I'm sorry, please forgive me. It's like that song, I'm sorry, Lord, for the things that I've made it, but it's all about you. It's like when I got on the other end of it and then I looked back and I thought, where's Jesus? 
Oh my goodness, where's King Jesus? And it's that revelation, that purity, that, honest, that, that, that honesty that we would really have with ourselves. Look at beloved, Jesus wants to have an intimate relationship with you, deeper than any relationship that you've ever had. He desires a closer walk with thee. He is the voice, literally the spirit of God that says this is the way that you should go walk in it. He is the one who leads us. We should not be leading ourselves. True leadership only comes from an authority greater than the, than the person. We don't bring nothing to the table. King Jesus brings everything to the table. I've been accused of many things in my life, but one of them that bugs me the most is that people say, he moves too slow. I'm real, sorry, not Sorry. If the Lord tells me to do something, I'm going to do it. But if he doesn't, I'm standing put. I know how to do bad good. And I don't want to do that anymore. If I don't know that the Lord is saying, do this, I'm not going to do this. Why? Because in my own life, I've had to remember where I have fallen. I've had to remember to hold fast. And I had to remember to repent. And I had to remember to strengthen the things that got weak. And to remember to be watchful because I thought I knew how to do it. What do I know today? Jesus is the answer. I'm the donkey, period. Sometimes I get to carry him in. Sometimes I get to speak for him. But I'm donkey. The, um, now don't send me emails. We already knew that. You know, whatever. <laughs> Go back when it was just you and Jesus, when it was really so good. I love verse 4. He says, you have a few names, even in Sardis. I love that. You got even in Sardis. I mean, so even Jesus is like, I know what it's like over there. Even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, there's always a remnant with Jesus. There's always hope with Jesus. And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Verse 5 says, he who overcomes, or she who overcomes, will be clothed with white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Satan lies and tells us that it was too far. And Jesus says there's hope. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I need to stop right there. If there is anybody in here who feels like that they're in a place where they shouldn't be, while the worship team is singing the last song, you guys just give your heart to the Lord. If there's anything you got to throw down, he, he is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. He's desiring a closer walk with every one of us. I mean, I think if I was to ask the question, hey, is everybody, if anybody's life is going 100% perfect right now, you have no aches, no pains, you have no worries, no concerns whatsoever, your life is just totally perfect, please stand. Nobody would stand. But if I, was to, if I was to say something like, hey, and I'm not saying this, but I just wanted you to think this thought through. If I was to say, I want everybody to stand up, and then I was to say, that, then I'm not asking anybody to stand up. I'm just saying, if I was to. But if you were already standing, and then I asked the house of God, hey, I, y'all, I want you to sit if everything in your life is good. But, but if, if you have a prayer in your heart, if you're something you're throwing out to the Lord, or even if it was something like if you just wanted a fresh touch from God, you just, you just wanted his, the indwelling of his spirit to be with you. You wanted to hear his voice more. You wanted a stronger leading from God. If I was to say, if, 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 if you don't want that, then sit down, almost nobody would sit down. And sometimes as preachers, we do that because it's like we want to motivate the house of God to say, yes, Lord, I want you. I want to be with you. But I'm not trying to motivate nobody. I'm just trying to state the facts. If you want God, go for God. Cry out to him with your heart. Lord, I want you. If there's burdens on your heart or anything like that, give them to the Lord because he says that he would take our burdens from us. If you want to pray with some of the elders, as Pastor Juan was saying, they're going to be outside. They'd love to pray with you. Whether, whether you need prayer or just want prayer, I just want somebody to pray with me or over me or whatever the case might be. You're more than welcome to do that. But as we sing this song, church, let's worship him because he's worthy. And let, let us rend our heart. And if there's anybody in here who doesn't know Jesus, in here or online, and you just felt your heart kind of stirred, 
The Bible says that we confess with our mouth and we believe in our heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and we would be saved. For with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. With the heart, one believes unto Jesus, who is our righteousness. Essentially, what that means is, God, I'm sorry. I, I confess the Lord Jesus. I believe Jesus is God. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins. Listen, it doesn't mean that you have to understand everything about it, but you're just, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the solution. And in that place, then I think it's wise to say, God, please forgive me of my sins. Have my heart. I'm yours. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for loving me. And if you believe that in your heart, it doesn't have to be verbatim, but something close. God, I need you. Forgive me a sinner. Out of a pure heart, that's all God wants. If you did that in here, please talk to one of the elders outside. If you did that online, please shoot us an email and we will follow up with you as soon as we can. For all y'all that are in here, let's stand and worship the King.